I'm Anne O'Brien and I'm joined by Noel Sarawiwa, the daughter of Ken Sarawiwa, and we're recording this interview for the Manus University Audio Archive. Noel, at what stage did you leave Nigeria? It was uh, the beginning of 1978, I think, so uh, two months shy of my second birthday. So your childhood was mainly spent growing up in England? Yes. yes. What were the highlights of that for you? What do you remember of that era? Uh, well, growing up in England, it was it was all about uh, watching cartoons and um, getting on our bicycles and riding around the neighbourhood. Uh, just very ordinary, everyday things, you know, looking, watching um, TV adverts and, and seeing uh, games, uh, board games that we wanted, and sometimes we'd get them for Christmas, and that was amazing. So, uh, yeah, just uh, very ordinary and uh, fun. And what stands out about your dad, Ken, from that period of your life? Uh, he was someone who, you know, he would come over uh, every couple of months or so. And um, and so he'd, he'd bring us chocolates. If, if he'd come via Switzerland, he'd bring us these uh, nice Swiss chocolates. And um, yeah, he always had uh, interesting stories to tell. I remember he had a story about the man from Paramaribo. And I can't remember what the story was, but he, I just remember him saying this man from Paramaribo and that really stuck with me and uh, I always wanted to go to Suriname as a result. Um, so yeah, he was, you know, he'd come over and, you know, he was a taskmaster as well, you know, he'd, uh, he'd come back from school and he'd have his own homework to set for us and uh, he'd go out and buy textbooks and we'd have to sit down and work on these textbooks. Um, mainly to do with English language and, and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, he always believed that uh, devils, idle hands are the devil's hands. And um, and so, you know, or sometimes he'd come into your room and, and just give you a book to read, you know, just give it to you and say, read it. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, th- I often really enjoyed the books and, I you know, I discovered uh, authors, you know, through that that way um and uh you made childhood visits back to nigeria as well what were those like for you yeah it's not i mean you know initially you'd be i'd be very annoyed at having to go back to nigeria you know i wanted to go on fancy holidays uh, to more exotic locations like my friends did at school um but you know you'd get used to it and you know after some time um you know, you felt quite sad to leave, you know, towards the end of the, the summer. Um, it, it was always a bit sad to leave Nigeria, but uh, it was great. I remember when my father was uh, producing his TV comedy show, Bassey and Company, and he took us to the studios where it was uh, recorded. And um, and so, you know, the, the, the crew would show us around. And I remember uh, particularly the vision mixer, him telling me that he was a vision mixer and what that meant. And, uh, and he showed us how to, you know, the ways that you could wipe images off a screen and, and stuff. And so that was, you know, that was really exciting. And, um, you know, my father was able to give us those sorts of experiences uh, that you wouldn't have uh, back in England. So, uh, 
you know, for, for all my protestations about having to go back to Nigeria, you'd always get a lot out of it, you know, at the end. And what do you remember particularly of Ogoni at that point? Um, you know, our village, Bana, it was the village. It's, it's, it's that boring place that we'd have to go back to. I, I always dreaded it because uh, obviously there's no air conditioning and I'd always get uh, bitten uh, by mosquitoes and... Um, and, you know, you, you, you're with the grandparents and stuff, but there's no chocolate, you know, there's no television, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the essentials of life when you were a child, they were, you know, you didn't have them in the village. And so, uh, yeah, I, I didn't enjoy uh, going back there and it always highlighted the fact that we weren't fluent in Kana, our dialect. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I, you know, I was never... Um, a massive fan of the village. Obviously, as an adult, you know, going back, uh, I, you know, we saw uh, areas of the village that were really beautiful. You know, there was like uh, the river, um, which uh, was kind of you would approach it, uh, of, you know, from a sort of a height, and uh, you're looking down, and uh, it was like fringed with mangroves, and you know, really quite stunning and it just seems such a shame that uh, such a beautiful area um that's so you know full of uh wildlife and animals and plants is neither a tourist destination nor a healthy agricultural area you know it's neither of those things and uh you know that's a real tragedy in your teenage years, Noah, how conscious or aware were you of Ken's work as an activist? Oh, very. I mean, he, he wrote the Ogoni Bill of Rights, and uh, which he gave to all of us and made us read. And obviously at that age, it's just in one ear and out the other. Um, but yeah, he was passionate. It was all he ever talked about. Uh, he'd be on the phone, bellowing down the phone with his friends, you know, um, it was it was everything to him and so for us as you know as a child it's just your father's work and you know you don't really appreciate the significance of it but uh, you know he was um he you know he would he, he would tell us uh, about the, the dangers that he faced uh, when i was 16 he, he he wrote a letter to me when i was at school at boarding school and and he said that they you know they could kill him uh, the military government could kill him. And I was really angry because I thought he was being overdramatic and uh, scaremongering. And, um, but, you know, he knew the risks and, uh, yeah, he kind of made sure that we knew the risks. So, yeah, you know, the, the politics was all around us. But I guess I, I, I really didn't understand um, what he was up against until the actual night that uh, he, he was killed. When he was imprisoned, how did your family respond to that? Did you get a sense of a heightening danger at that point? No, because he went to prison in 1993 and and um, and he was there for, you know, it was like a month. And, um, and then he was let out again. And, and Nigeria was that kind of place. You know, it was a military dictatorship. People were in and out of prison. You know, Chinu Achebe had been in prison and, uh, I mean, and Wallace Yinka. Uh, it was just a part of life in, in Nigeria. But, you know, Nigeria wasn't, it wasn't quite like other repressive states, like, you know, um, 
it was, you know, we didn't have a sort of gulag, Russian-style gulag. So when someone went to prison, um, you didn't think that, you know, death would be uh, the outcome. But, you know, Sani Abacha was, was the most brutal out of all the dictators. And But also, my, you know, my father had a way of uh, not making light of things, but, you know, he took things on the chin and he was very... Um, he, he didn't allow being in prison and stop him from focusing on what I would consider relatively trivial matters. You know, he he was still harassing me for my exam results when, when he was in prison and I didn't want to tell him my exam results. But, you know, he was demanding them. And um, and even in, in the archive here at Maynooth, um, I was reading his letters to Sister Magella and, you know, he was talking to her about uh, the, the troubles in Northern Ireland and how heartened he was that some progress had been made in negotiations. And, uh, you know, it was like, that's what he was like. You know, he didn't focus entirely on his predicament. Um, you know, he still had an interest in what was going on around the world and, you know, within the family. And, you know, when someone is like that, you don't... Um, they make it easy for you to... I guess, underestimate, uh, you know, the danger ahead. Were you and the family also heartened by the international supporting campaign for his release? Oh, yeah, it was wonderful, you know, having people like Anita Roddick of The Body Shop um, on our side and, and really um, uh, giving voice to, to, you know, my father's message and, and uh, you know, the international community really rallied round and and uh, and so I guess it gave a false sense of security uh, when we had the Commonwealth Summit in New Zealand um, I really believed that uh, you know I, di- I didn't believe that the Nigerian government could possibly do anything at a time like that you know my, my brother was Ken Jr was was out there in New Zealand uh, campaigning for my father's release and um you know, you had Nelson Mandela um, supporting my father. And uh, so you really sense that you had the world on your side. And and um, so when he did die, and especially the timing of it, you, you know, during this summit, so it, you know, it came as a real shock. Uh, that regime was really brutal and just very defiant. And... Um, you know, and that's uh, that's the thing. Sometimes having that sort of global support is not enough when you're dealing with the likes of Sani Abacha. How did you hear the news now? Um, well, I was a second year university student in London, at King's College London, and um, he was sentenced to death, my father and his colleagues, they were sentenced to death on uh, October 31st. Um, so that was came as a real shock, but then, you know, the international community, um, really rallied round. So come November 10th, um, you know, it was, it was just another day within that particular period. I was, I think I must have attended, um, classes that day, if I remember correctly. And then, um, I went and did some shopping and I came back to the house I was living in in North London, and my housemate uh, left a a message um, 
just a handwritten note on the table saying, um, call your mother. And, uh, and so I called my mother and, and she was the one who told me. And, you know, I just, um, I just, I just put down the phone, um, which was the same reaction I had when I was told that my little brother died two years previously. I just put down the phone and, uh, and then went home, uh, immediately back to my mother's house uh, and then uh, yeah and, and just spent and spent the evening with uh, the family my, my cousins and my aunt and uncle came over and uh, yeah was it particularly difficult for the family to mourn your dad when his body hadn't been released to you yeah it was um the whole thing was very surreal and I think you know, when someone dies, seeing their body is a really important part of the grieving process. And, you know, when my brother died two years previously, um, you know, I remember how important it was to, to see his body. And so, you know, for my father, because he, he, he was often, when he was alive, he was in Nigeria, we were in England. So he was always away. And then, you know, in 93, 94, he was away, but in prison. And then suddenly he was away in Nigeria, but dead. And so it was kind of odd in the sense that it felt like nothing had changed, you know, from where I was in England. But um, obviously we knew that he was dead. So it was, it was it just... I don't know. It's very, it's very hard to explain, to try and understand and deconstruct your feelings after these events. You know, you kind of need maybe another twenty years to make sense of it all. So, uh, but yeah, not not having his, uh, his his remains and not getting them back for a whole um, ten years at least was uh, it just made it very, very surreal. Um, I think it was only having his death constantly reported. Uh, that that you know really made it feel uh, real, um, and I think about people, ordinary people who have been killed or gone missing, and you know their family not hearing anything from them, and not you know, and there's no press coverage, there's nothing, and it's just it's bizarre, a really really strange feeling. When did you next go back to Nigeria? Um, it was in the year two thousand. Um, so we went, it was my father's mock funeral, as it were. Um, I think in a Goni culture, you have to, people don't feel that, you know, a spirit soul has rested until, uh, a person's been buried. And, and so we just thought we would go through the motions of a, of a burial, um, even though we hadn't had received his remains at that point. Uh, so we went back there for just, it was a, maybe a week and a half. Uh, and then the next time I went was five years after that, in 2005. Uh, and by then we did have his remains and we buried him properly. So in your own life then, you have become a travel writer. At what point did you decide that was what you wanted to do? Um, well, in terms of writing, I'd always wanted to be a writer I, on some level. Uh, right from when I was nine years old or ten years old and got my first uh, thesaurus. Um, and, but, you know, school, uh, sort of 
douses your creative flames, I guess. And uh, so I thought, I decided I wanted to be a journalist and I went to journalism school at uh, Columbia University in New York. Uh, but I realized that uh, actually hard news journalism wasn't really for me. Um, so I had this sort of epiphany of uh, uh, deciding that travel writing was what I wanted to do. It, 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 was, you know, it, was, it combined all the things I love, travel and writing, uh, creative prose, but nonfiction. And, um, and uh, you know, talking about economics and history and, you know, combining that with uh, just basic uh, observations about people, everyday people. And, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, I was 25 and I thought, okay, you know, I, I want to travel uh, predominantly around Africa and, and write about it. So tell me about your book, then, the product of those adventures. Uh, yeah, so... Um, my book, Looking for Trans Wonderland, um, I decided that Nigeria would be the next uh, book I would write. Um, I did a, a book on South Africa first, which I decided not to publish, and then uh, Nigeria was next on my list. Uh, and so, yeah, I was, um, I, you know, I hadn't really been back to Nigeria, apart from those two brief visits from my father's uh, mock funeral and then actual burial uh i really hadn't you know spent that much time in nigeria and uh you know time had passed and you know we now had a democracy the military dictatorship was gone sani apache was dead um and there was you know an element of of uh optimism within nigeria and it just seems a much more hospitable place generally um but you know because so much time had passed as well I, you know, I felt ready to go back, and I was really curious about it because I'd I'd, uh, I'd spent a lot of time traveling in other countries around Africa um, on holidays, and as well as uh, writing uh, travel guidebooks. And it suddenly occurred to me that well, actually, you know, Nigeria is a place that I could travel around in the same way that I'd done in Ghana and Madagascar, etc. And that realization was actually quite exciting, you know. The the idea that I could uh, just get and jump on a minibus and travel from city to city, you know. You do that in other countries, but somehow in your own country, it never occurs to you to do that because, you know, in your own country, you go back and you visit relatives and you're chauffeur-driven and it's all very, you know, it's a very infantilized experience. And the, the, the idea that I could actually get on a Okada, a motorcycle taxi, uh, and, you know, visit even my own hometown, Potakot, that way, was a really novel idea. But, you know, I, I, I thought, well, actually, this is, this is a really good way of uh, reconnecting with Nigeria and doing it in a way that, you know, uh, didn't remind me of my father's death. If I'd gone, simply gone back to Potakot, our family home and the village, uh, I would have been reminded of that horrible period in the 90s and um, nothing would have changed. But, you know, riding on camels in Kano and, you know, getting on boats uh, along the Cross River outside Calabar, Doing all those sorts of things, being in the mountains in Obudu, um, 
it just, you know, I saw a different side to Nigeria and, um, and I was really able to uh, disassociate being in Nigeria with, you know, my father's murder. So it was it was a great trip in in, in that respect. It was infuriating <laughs> in its own way, but um, I really really enjoyed it. It it, it took the um, the sting out of the word Nigeria for me, and uh, it was a sort of therapy that I needed. Are you hopeful for Nigeria? Um, yes and no. Nigeria is always given cause for despair and hope you know there's always something really good going on combined with something bad so you know we have right now we have Boko Haram and the Islamic insurgency but at the same time um you know we're a sort of proper democracy as it were you know it's got lots of flaws obviously but you know we have we had a president who lost the election and conceded uh without a fight and that's the first time that's ever happened. And, and that's really, that's really nice. You know, he set an example that, you know, hopefully would make it completely unacceptable for anyone else to do otherwise, you know, in the same position. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think people have much more of a voice now, thanks to the internet and social media. Uh, there's a real, you know, people are much more vocal in a way that they weren't in the past and you know and hopefully all of that sort of thing you know people being able to monitor the government um will bring us some sort of transparency and so there's reason to be hopeful but you just never know nigeria's destiny is not just in the hands of of nigerians you know we're so subject to external factors as well and and you know because of that you it's just it's very very hard to predict but uh what i do know is that we're really resilient people you know we've been through things that um i think you know people in the uk uh, would not have been able to deal with you know we've lost thousands to terrorists um we've had a civil war in the past you know none of these things have actually uh destroyed nigeria you know and uh, and that's really heartening, you know, to know that we can survive anything. You've seen the archive that's in Maynooth. Um, what did you? What struck you from that today when you saw it? Um, well, I was really, I mean, first and foremost, just really amazed and grateful that there are people out there who are, you know, dedicated enough uh, to put together an archive like that, you know, and, um, you know just preserve my father's memory in that kind of way. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. And, you know, it really reminds you of his struggle, even though you're aware of it, you think about it, you know, every hour of the, every day, um, seeing his writings there and um, having that, uh, the audio recordings, um, my uncle and Sister Magella, uh, you know, it, it really sort of brings home to you um, you know what the struggle is is all about, and uh, you know it's wonderful. I'm I'm, I'm so glad we have this uh, resource. You know we got have those screens, tablet screens as well, where you can look at uh, his his letters and some of the photographs in Ogonilands that uh, Sister Magella McCorran took in, in in the 90s and and whatnot. So you know it's just a wonderful um, way of you know capturing that part of history and, and you know, reminding people about uh, the struggle. It's, um, 
you know, I'm so, so grateful. And, um, you know, I, I want to spread the word uh, about this, uh, this archive. Will you read from your book for us? Thank you. Um, this is an excerpt uh, from the sort of beginning of the book uh, describing how I felt about going back to Nigeria in the summer holidays when I was a child. I was a toddler when the family uh, moved to England in 1978. It was during the oil boom when the Nigerian currency, the Naira, enjoyed near parity with the British pound and a middle-class Nigerian life could easily be transferred to England. With plans to give us English schooling, my father settled the family in the UK while he continued to work in Nigeria as a property developer, writer and businessman. For months at a time, our family was headed by our homesick mother. She cooked plantain and grappled with central heating and the other novelties of English life. We watched Sesame Street and scribbled naughtily on the walls when not scanning the fridge for snacks. But the luxuries of English life were not what my father had brought his children to England for. We were here to get an education, and he was terrified we'd all gone soft, which is why our summer returns to Nigeria sometimes included a brutal acculturation fortnight in our village. The experience was character building, uh, was a character building one, in which we were forced to live without electricity, running water, and the most egregious of deprivations, television. It was a tropical gulag. Nameless aunts and uncles would claw lovingly at our faces and mock us for not speaking our native language fluently. Obekruawa, they would deliberately ask us, cackling at our non-response. For dinner, they fed us intensely savoury dishes such as ground rice and okra soup, eaten by the light of a kerosene lamp and washed down with body temperature Coca-Cola. Then, at bedtime, we provided the meals for an invisible but frighteningly audible army of mosquitoes and sandflies. By dawn, our arms were covered in itchy lumps that looked like strawberries, only bigger, and our fingernails had turned black from the, from the nocturnal scratching of sweaty flesh. Having a cooling shower was the only incentive to get up and face the new day, yet even achieving that was a chore in itself. You had to fetch the water first. We didn't have to trek all the way to the river, but the jerry can still needed to be dragged from my grandmother's house 20 metres away from ours, which wasn't easy when the water weighed more than we did. Concerned that all this suffering wasn't sufficiently authentic, my father later instructed my grandmother to take us everywhere she went. We were to shadow her every move to get a true taste of village life. But she interpreted this diktat more literally than my father intended and tried waking us up for pre-dawn prayers. Faking sleep, my siblings and I cowered against the hot, sticky bedsheets as her lamplit silhouette banged against the window and called out our names. Zina, no, tedum, ake, wake up. I'd never suffered such cold sweats in such a hot place. By contrast, my parents believed that without, without their country, they were nothing. My mother habitually referred to our Surrey residence as the house. Nigeria was home, the place where her parents and her siblings lived, where her wilted energies blossomed and her pale skin toasted to its original brown. At home, she sparkled in Nigerian traditional clothing rather than battling the British winter air in woolens and thick overcoats. At home, she was no longer the alienated housewife, but the madame, handing over laundry and shopping lists to the servant while she caught up with old friends. My father's patriotism was even more fervent. He carpeted our hallway in green to match the colour of the national flag, and once interrupted a crucial TV episode of Little House on the Prairie to teach me verses of the national anthem, a pointed stand against our Americanization. Even our passports remained resolutely Nigerian as a snub to gold-dusted British citizenship. 
One year, when I was 12, my father tried to instill a love of country in his children by taking us on a road trip to see the beautiful side of Nigeria. From our hometown of Potakot in the south, we travelled north into the interior. My sister, younger brother and I sat in the back of our Peugeot 504 while our father puffed on his pipe in the front passenger seat and hummed with us to Richard Clayderman, a deeply uncool classical pianist who performed covers of 1970s pop songs. Our driver, Sonny, who hated those tinkling Bee Gees and Barbra Streisand covers, drove in agonised silence through the Central Highlands. Throughout the trip, we were repeatedly reminded of how lucky we were to travel in this way. Very few Nigerians have seen as much of the country as you, my father would say, uh, on the way to uh, places like the Ankari uh, Game Reserve or the new capital city Abuja. But I was too young to grasp this privilege. Fun as the trip was in parts, I still wasn't sold on the country. No, Zariwa, thank you so much for joining us in Manus today. Thank you.